When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thanks to all of you uh, for being here. Usually what we hope for um, uh, and aim for uh, with these Intelligence Squared events is to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. And that's always the intention. And I think tonight we've managed to score on all three counts. So I think it is very clearly the right time to be talking about Putin and Russia. Just in the last week, news of... That extraordinary story could have come from a thriller with the faked murder of a Russian journalist. Also last week, we had one of Britain's best-known Russians, Roman Abramovich, deciding to change his address details. He decided? Uh, He decided, (laughs) uh, under pressure perhaps, we might say. Uh, And that was just in the last week. But even looking just beyond the last seven days... uh, Timely in so many ways. So, of course, this, the year when they suspected, and others here will put it more firmly than that, use of a Russian nerve agent on the streets of an English city, uh, the attack on Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury. Also, this, the year where uh, Putin's ally in Damascus, accused by the world of using chemical weapons in Duma, and then just stretching back earlier, obviously the ongoing accusation in Russian meddling in the American election in favor of Donald Trump for president, and going a bit further back, the Russian intervention in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. So whether you're measuring in days, months, or years, uh, a discussion and a serious discussion about Russia feels timely. In terms of being the right place, well, of course, many people in this audience will know already that London is a place which is not just home to uh, many Russians, but where billions of pounds of Russian money has found safe harbour, whether in the property system or in the financial system. And that is an ongoing part of any discussion about what the the West might do about Russia. But finally, I mentioned that it should be not just the right place and the right time, but the right people. And there, I think there can be no argument that we have on the stage here four people who are personally involved with, personally bound up with, but also professionally uh, placed to observe everything that is going on in Russia now and stretching back the last two or three decades. So without further ado, I thought I would 
introduce them. Uh, and just before I do that, to say something about the format, we are going to have a conversation up here uh, in the usual way. People who've been to these will know that for the first chunk of time. And then, of course, it wouldn't be Intelligence Square without opening it up to contributions. And I hope brief, concise, and pointed questions from all of you. I'll take a group of those and then bring them back to our panelists. So to tell you who our four speakers are, first and on my uh, right here is the Bulgarian political scientist who is chairman of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, widely regarded expert on Balkan and European affairs, and soon to take his post as the Henry Kissinger Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress. A warm welcome, please, for Ivan Krustev. And next to him and next to me is the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and columnist for the Washington Post, also a professor here in London at the London School of Economics, where she runs a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda, and that's obviously going to be one of our themes tonight. Her latest book, which won multiple prizes, is Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine. A welcome, please, for Anne Applebaum. On my immediate left is the man who served as United States' ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. Before that, he served as special assistant to President Barack Obama as the, and as the senior director of the, uh, for Russian and Eurasian affairs on the United States National Security Council. His new book is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Please welcome Michael McFall. And completing our panel, and his words will be brought to us by his translator, our translator for tonight, Elena Cook, uh, but he will be following our deliberations, and you can see a little device there to make sure they're there in translation as he speaks in Russian, is the founder of Open Russia, which is a movement com uh, committed to promoting democracy in Russia. He was famously head of the Yukos oil company, Russia's largest private oil firm before he was arrested in 2003 and sentenced to 14 years in jail on charges of tax evasion and fraud, charges which he vigorously denied. He was pardoned and released from prison in 2013, completing our panel, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Thank you. So... So each of our four speakers then, um, the subject before us tonight is the threat from Russia, can Putin be st stopped? So a question which sort of takes it as read that there is a threat there, but let's see how great a threat our four speakers think we are dealing with, um, and let's start, well we'll go in the same order I introduced you, let's start with you, Ivan Krostev, put very simply and just briefly, because we're going to hear opening shots from each of you, how worried about Russia should we be? And there was this uh, old joke about uh, a Jewish guy sending a telegram to his wife saying, start worrying, details to follow. Uh, <laughs> but basically, I do believe, and for me this is quite important, that I'm worried about two different things. One, I'm worried because obviously, perceived from Russia, Russia is in the war with the West, and basically you act in the way you do it. I'm also worried in the way 
the West is discussing Russia. Because, to be honest, trying to explain everything that's going wrong in our societies as a Russia interference, I also find this worrying too. Well, that's brief and to the point. There'll be lots for us to unpick with that. Anne Applebaum, how worried are you and how worried should we all be? So I am specifically worried about something that Ivan has referred to, which is um, not just Russia as a military threat, not just Russia as a as a political challenge, but Russia's interest in us and our societies and and our democracies. And um, although I agree that um, not everything that goes wrong in, in any Western country has 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 can be blamed on Russia, I think that Russia has identified. The, the, the profound polarization that exists in many Western societies and is attempting to use it for political purposes um, to elect um, particular parties and to, and to create political outcomes in Europe and in the United States that are not going to be favorable to us. Thank you. Um, Ambassador, how worried, how worried were you when you were doing the job and are you more or less worried now? Well, the first question I want to know was, when you say we, who are we talking well, about? Well, I was right? wondering which one of you would uh, pick on Because when I'm sitting in California or Washington, I think of we in one context. When I sit in London, I think about it somewhat differently. And when I was in Kiev not too long ago, I think, Anne, you were just there recently too, the we becomes even broader, right? So if we think of the West in the broadest terms, uh, and you're sitting in Kiev, I consider Kiev part of the West, uh, you should be very worried. Uh, because Putin is out to destroy your regime. He does not want to see that political or economic system uh, succeed. If you're sitting here and you're, if you're sitting in Washington, we should also be worried uh, because Vladimir Putin, in my view, uh, seeks the destruction of the liberal international order. Now, whether you think that's good or bad, that's why the we, I ask. Because if, yes. if some of my counterparts from America were here, they would say, yes, that's fantastic. We need to destroy the liberal international order. Uh, I we, disagree We have a few that. people with that view here, okay. too. Okay, all right. I'll let you speak for them. I'm not going to be so uh, – I'm not going to meddle in your internal affairs here. Um, uh, so that's, that, that, is, that really depends on where you sit on that question. But from my point of view, who's somebody who believes in democracy, who believes in markets – who believes in the liberal international order has been a good thing for the last several decades. Uh, Putin is a threat to that liberal international order. You, Mikhail Kordikovsky. We can talk about threat coming from Russia in the same sense that we would talk about Ebola virus as a threat coming from Africa. Russia itself has very little to do with what the Kremlin gang the Kremlin criminal gang is doing. And I think Russia itself goes on supplying oil and gas to the West, and Russian scientists and Russian cultural figures keep coming to the West, and I think maybe a lot of them are present here in this audience. So I do very much hope that we're going to talk about the threat posed by that criminal gang in the Kremlin rather than the threat posed by Russia. Good. Well, thank you for that distinction. Um, do, any of you, do, do any of you want to pick up particularly on that last point, that distinction? That to, I mean, maybe you, Ivan, because you said at the beginning there that it's becoming too easy for people to blame Russia for all the ills, and here we're getting a qualification that it isn't Russia, it's a particular group around Vladimir Putin. No, no listen, I'll go on two things. First, I totally agree. Most of the Russians even not interested and don't know what is going on. They're not taking decisions, basically. They're not disinforming anybody, because this is not 
the people that are doing things. This is the state. Uh, but also when I said that I'm worried about uh, the way we're debating Russia is that, to be honest, I, I'm worried about something that I have seen in Russia years ago. Everything that is happening within the country to be explained by the external threat. Everything that is wrong, the government is going to say this is because of the West. Americans did it. People on the street because of the Americans. Everything is because of the Americans. I do believe that there is a tendency in some of our societies to say everything that you don't like around, every problem that we have is because of the Russian government. I don't buy also this. First of all, because it makes the Russian government much stronger than it makes because like well, you said this before, very, very specifically, though, do you, do, when you say that, do you therefore mean there was not Russian meddling in the American no, election, about, or I, there was, but it didn't matter? Listen, I do believe that there was a Russian meddling in the American elections, because this is also what was shown uh, by the report of the FBI and others. So this is from this point of view. Uh, this is something which is prone. Was it Russia that explained that Donald Trump is the president of the United States? I don't buy this. And what I don't buy most, and I find this as a threat, is that if you go this way to believe that everything that happened came from outside, we start not analyzing rightly our own societies. And this is a threat. Yeah. Yes, please applaud. I agree with that, obviously. Uh, it is a crude uh, characterization to say that somehow Putin chose our president, no, no, 63, actually 62 million Americans did. 65 voted for the other candidate, just to remind you. Um, uh, um, the, the permissive conditions of polarization were there before Putin exacerbated them. But let's make no mistake, uh, this is something extraordinary. This is something new. To steal, notice the verb I'm using. I don't like hacking. Hacking's too soft a verb. I'm, I'm from the Silicon Valley. This is not hacking. This is stealing. To steal data from Americans and then publish it to try to affect the electoral outcome. That's something new that we need to, to, to face. To put out disinformation, I'm using that word purposely, uh, on platforms that are made in America, you know, where I live, uh, to influence po politics in America. That is also something new. And at the same time, we should be able to be both those concepts together. Yes, polarization existed well before uh, Putin did these things. Yes, we have problems internally that makes uh, it easier for people like Putin to do the things he does. And yes, in America, there are people, just to, to reiterate, that like Putin and like what he's doing in terms of this disruption and the, the set of ideas that he's putting out there. Do you, do you think the president and the people around the president are among those people who like that project? Well, so some of the people around the president were, and thankfully, in my view, they've been fired. Uh, they're spending who, who, a lot of time who, in Europe these days. Uh, who do you have in mind? Steve Bannon, of course. I mean, uh, if you look at what he said before the election, uh, he believes that there is a transnational ideological struggle going on in the Western world of which there are allies, from his point of view, in your country, in, in Bulgaria, all, all across Europe, and by the way, not just Europe. And, and in his world... Putin is an ally in that struggle. And that's what I meant when I said about the we. He thinks there's an ideological struggle. Uh, Vladimir Putin most certainly frames the world in those, those ways. He didn't always, by the way. I, I think his, his ideas have evolved. Uh, but he sees the world in that way. Where Trump is or not, frankly, that's a mystery to me. I, I don't want to assign too much kind of ideological coherence there. Uh, um, I think that would be overstating uh, the case. 
And that's a diplomatic way of putting it, I sense. Um, go on, Anne. No, can I just pick up on what Mikhail says? Because it is extremely important to distinguish the interests of Putin and the clique around him from the interests of Russia as a whole. Um, because it actually explains why Russia does what he does. I mean, sorry, why Putin does what he does. Um, he is interested, above all, in, in staying in power. Um, he is also interested, above all, in continuing to make money. Um, one of the things that we often in the West misunderstand about Russia um, is that we have a lot of trouble trying to understand whether it's a strong country or a weak country. Because in many ways, it looks weak. It's not the strongest economy in, in the world. It's not even the strongest economy in Europe. Um, it, it seems to have very weak social bonds. You know, the, 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 the state is not legitimately elected. Um, the, the government seems to fear the people in many ways. You know, and at the same time, it's very strong. And the reason why it's strong is that Putin is the equivalent. Try to imagine an American president who owned uh, General Motors, uh, Exxon, ran the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, was also the president, also controlled the CIA, also controls the FBI, and also. So in other words, he has more levers of power. Um, than, most, than most Western politicians do, any Western politician, actually, I should say. So he's therefore able to act in a way um, that we can't. And Helps one him of, keep popular at home, too. And one, and, but, and one of his interests, for example, is you know, he, he and the people around him are actually the owners of the Russian economy. They own the companies. They, uh, so they are making money. So when, when, you know, when, when we talk about you know, what, is, what is the Russian state company's interest abroad, what is the Russian state's interest abroad, and what is Putin's interest abroad? These are all um, the same thing. So, when so in a way, what you're saying about Mikhail's definition is, yes, you're exempting the people, but everything else, the Russian state and, and this criminal gang, they're actually inseparable. They're, they're inseparable. And so when we talk about Russian foreign policy, what we mean is the policy of this clique, and which is all about them staying in power and them earning money. Um, and this is, a, this is why I think Russia is difficult to understand, because it doesn't behave like a state in the way that we imagine. I would like to continue with what Anne has just said. And I think we should make a much more focused, uh, pay more, much more focused attention to the people who are really guilty in Russia. I'll be the last person to speak up for the Russian government. But let's not blame the Russian government of what we've just said. I mean, in the Western sense, what is the Russian government? It's a few hundreds or uh, hundreds of thousands of civil servants. And I think what they do is publicly important, more or less. I mean, you know, we should, it's difficult to talk about Russian roads, but there are roads, after all, in Russia. The situation with the Russian pensions is rather sad at the moment, but pensions are being paid. But some parts of the Russian government are just sort of uh, virtual reality. Take Mr. Lavrov, your counterparty. Would you say that he is responsible for the Russian foreign relations, for the Russian foreign policy? No, of course not. And then let's look at number two at the Russian power Olympus, Mr. Sechin. Would you say he's part of the Russian government? No, he is not. Он что, входит в российское правительство? Нет, он руководитель нефтяной компании. Does that mean then you would sign up for this title of this event if it was called the threat from Putin? Can Putin be stopped? That you would have no problem with. That is how you see the issue. Yeah. I think you're taking it too narrow. I think what we should really talk about a very small clique of beneficiaries of the present regime. 
бенефициаров нынешнего режима. Listen, there is a famous uh, Soviet joke which probably people will know for a guy who was uh, working in a samovar-producing uh, company. And he was stealing different parts of the samovar with the hope that he's going to assemble one for himself. But any time he assembled the samovar, it appeared to be a Kalashnikov. Uh, <laughs> so uh, from this point of view, you have this. My idea is I'm in a certain way in between. I don't believe it's inevitable at all. By the way, nothing is inevitable. People take decisions. It's also not so accidental because let's make it slightly more complex. Do you know that at the present moment in Eastern Europe, we know Visegrad four countries with the exception of Poland, President Putin is more popular than President Trump, much more popular than so Chancellor here. Merkel. <laughs> Why I'm saying this? In a certain way, of course, it was not accidental, but there was a certain type of experience on which he touched, and this explains why people followed him. This is not why he was good appointed. Point. It's a good point. And he I was chosen it, accidentally, exactly. but there was support afterwards. Point, I think one that's of a the fair best point. explanation of this came from something that Mr. Khodorkovsky wrote immediately when he went to prison. Listen, there was a major redistribution of property. Russia lost one third of its economy in the 1990s. The everyday life of the people changed dramatically for good or for bad. This was a major trauma. To basically try to say that this doesn't matter, no, it matters. And people have been looking for certain stability and looking for kind of somebody who comes as a savior. It's a totally probably accidental that it was this person that came, but obviously there was a trend. But, and he, but he also offered something in particular. He offered yeah. nostalgia. And, sure. and from the very beginning, he was somebody who was one of the very, his most famous statement is, you know, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet oh. Union. And he has always had nostalgia for that period. He has selectively chosen bits of it to celebrate, the, you know, the bringing back the World War II marches, the pieces of the Soviet experience that people liked or remembered. And, and he, he, he knew to do that and he cared about it, probably instinctively. Uh, just one sentence, because for me this is very important. I do believe one thing on which touched and which is very difficult to be seen from outside is, for everybody from outside, Soviet Union was equal to communism. But for many Russians, Soviet Union was not equal to communism. It was simply their country. So from this point of view, he touched on this. And he used it, and in my view, he tried to merge the Russian history and the Soviet history in the way he totally re-legitimized. And the anthem story that you are basically changing the text by the same author uh, and keeping the music, I do believe this is a kind of a best metaphor for what happened. Thermidor, right? The yeah, blending of the exactly. Well, what, what about this? Because, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, Putin put you in a prison cell, and yet here you're hearing nostalgia, stability. Do you, despite your own personal history, understand why many Russians, some Russians, nevertheless follow Vladimir Putin? I think this is a combination of several factors. First of all, the feeling of 
humiliation. And I think this was one of the worst propaganda mistakes by the West. So when the West talked about its victory in the Cold War, it was a very large, big mistake. The second one was our mistake, when we didn't really appreciate how defenseless people felt after the collapse of the Soviet Union socially, unprotected. And all the rest were consequences of that. So I would agree that, yes, rolling down the hill is much easier than actually climbing the hill. But it is not inevitable that you have to roll down. So we stumbled three times before the roll down started, in fact. The first one was in 1993, when the constitution was changed to become an authoritarian constitution. The second mistake was 1996, the second stumble, when Yeltsin decided not to leave, not to go. Had he gone, then the communists would have come to power and 1998 would have happened under their rule. You mean the meltdown? The financial crisis of 1998. That would have been brilliant. Absolutely. And the last mistake was in 1999, when it was decided that the most important thing was to preserve Russia's security and the family. Very briefly, because I do want to get you two in on something Mikhail said there, which was in the list of his mistakes, one of them was something that the West did, which was to declare victory a triumphalism in the Cold War. I want to get on to what should be done now, but before we leave the sort of history, can I just hear each of you on what you think the Western contribution to creating the Putin problem, if it is a problem, was. And so why don't you start so, in the new, but briefly. I, I would point to two other, two different things. Um, I would point to the West's premature um, description of Russia as a democracy and the, the, the trumpeting of the triumph of democracy and capitalism in Russia, which happened very early in the 1990s. We began assuming that democracy was somehow happening and capitalism was there, um, and, and using that language um, in Russia um, at a moment when most Russians didn't feel it at all. I mean, they saw all around them theft, they saw inequality, they didn't see anything. That, and, and actually, what I think happened in Russia was that the word democracy became devalued and it became something that people associated with chaos. And that was partly Putin's um, doing, but I think it was also the West's you know, insistence on using this language at a moment when it wasn't um, appropriate. I think the Probably, though, the more important role that the West played, um, and one that wasn't being remarked on or noted at the time to the degree that it should have been, is the role that the West played in laundering um, stolen money. Uh, so we were, we were the, the money that was being taken out of Russia and, and, and packed into eventually London houses, but um, offshore companies, um, you know, shell companies, and you know, all kinds of different ways that there are plenty of people in this audience who will, will certainly understand. Um, that was the that money was then the money that Putin and the people around him used to you know to te- to, to get and hold power to rebuy companies and property in Russia and we enabled that we continue to enable it um, not only in Russia I should say but but around the world. Where are you on the Western contribution to this problem? Well, two things. I was living in the Soviet Union in 1990-91. Uh, I was at Moscow State University for that fateful year. By the way, Putin remembers that, uh, and that's why he doesn't let me travel to Russia anymore, in part, because he remembers that. Because that was the year of regime change, right? That was the year of the collapse of the Soviet Union. But for me, and so he for, blames you. 
Yeah, he yeah, does, actually. actually. He does. <laughs> actually, very personally, he's blamed me. And I'm going to get to that when, I, when we get to the, the, the Obama administration in a minute, because there's one more bite at this apple. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're in the 90s right now. There's a lot of history we, we should cover, but we'll cover it very quickly. Um, in 1991, for me personally, I'm not going to generalize about the West, but I had lots of Russian friends. It felt like a, it was a, our victory. Yeah. And by the way, Russians were way more important in winning the Cold War than anything George H.W. Bush was doing in, in the, you know, the, the, the spring or summer or, or fall of 1991. They were observing the politics that was happening in Mikhail Khodorkovsky's country. I just happened to be living there. They were the ones that brought down communism, for God's sakes. And that framing, I think that you were talking about, that was the framing we got wrong politically, that we won and they lost. That was the first thing. Oh, Number two, though, there's a, bigger, there's a bigger part of this. There was a bigger idea that the ideas of democracy were triumphant. Uh, remember my colleague, Frank Fukuyama, who teaches at Stanford with me, he wrote that the history had ended. And, and there was a feeling of inevitability about the ideas of democracy, and I would say uh, capitalism as well. That true, proved to be premature. But third in the 90s, we also took our eye off the ball. And when I say we now, I mean the American administration at the time. Uh, you may forget, but in 1992, the most fateful year of this transition, we weren't focused on your transition. Uh, we weren't thinking about Marshall plans that helped take, uh, relieve some of the things you talked about. And we weren't talking about you know, the, how to build democracy. We were focused on ourselves. We had this America Firster guy. You may have forgot him. He, he later became president. His name's Bill Clinton. Remember what he said in 1992? He said, it's the economy, stupid. That was, his that was his campaign slogan in 1992, to criticize the internationalist George H.W. Bush. And by the time he got around to you know, coming into power January 1993, uh, the, the reformist government was already gone in Russia. So to me, that was a critical mistake. Whether you know, more aid and more attention would have changed things, that's a counterfactual that's hard to run. But I, don't, I think for both of those reasons, a feeling of inevitability and the idea that we, you know, we had to get on with our problems at home, why do we care what's happening in Russia? Those two things were, I think, big mistakes. I think all of that is extremely helpful in getting us a sense of how we got here and that it wasn't inevitable. It was a series of decisions taken inside Russia but also by Western policymakers. Let, let's, before we open it out, let's talk about what might be done now, and I think it would be valuable to hear all four of you on this, you know, whether it is the situation of, uh, which will be very much on British minds, of the uh, attack on the Skripals in Salisbury, what, you know, how does, uh, or whether it's that, or whether it's meddling elections to whatever extent it was, or whether it's the role uh, helping Assad in Syria, for Western policymakers looking at these series of challenges, uh, which, as you put it, Hambasto, are part of perhaps an ideological worldview, a project, how should the West respond beyond booting out, you know, a couple of dozen diplomats from this capital or that capital? What would be a good and substantial response to this challenge? And why don't we hear from you first on this, even? Listen, I do believe it's, it's very important to make also a point which we're not making. Not simply Russia changed. The world has changed. And because the world has changed, now through Russia and talking about Russia, the West is trying basically to understand how the world that basically was very much constructed by the West start to be perceived by the West as a threat to the West. You say meddling. In a globalization, you're meddling in other people's domestic politics, simply because information borders does not exist. The problem with the Russia is that they're meddling secretly. If I, for example, don't have any problem with the Russia today, 
This is the voice of the Russian government. You know who speaks. They can speak what they want. You're talking here about the television network, RT. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. The problem was that basically you have a covert operation which you don't know who speaks. But you're living in the world in which if you imagine that there are going to be CNN in Russia, there could be a Russia television in the United States. So this is what globalization is about. The problem is that till five years ago, we have been seeing only things that are connecting us together. And now you see these same trends weaponized. Basically, weaponization of globalization is what we are seeing. But Ivan, be careful. CNN and Russia today are not the same thing. No, they're okay. not, for sure. One is but an instrument of government power. CNN is a commercial organization. And not on radio, not in Russian, in Russian language, in cable packages today. No, but my major argument is the following. Listen, you cannot prevent people having views on American policy, or nobody can tell Americans that they should not make a statement about yeah, Russia policy. I agree, I agree, because yeah. the moment when you're going this, by the way, this was the major accusation of President Putin towards the United States. Why you comment on our domestic politics? Because we're living in the world in which we're so much interdependent that everybody can comment on everybody. But even people may say that's fine about information, but that wouldn't extend to using chemical weapons on the streets of okay, an English town. Is, so how do you deal with that part of the challenge? This is, I do believe this is the problem, and even not only information. It's very important when you're meddling to know who is meddling. I'm saying, and basically it should be your name, your position, and so on. The problem with uh, bots and others is that you have you create the impression that it is one American citizen talking to another American citizen when a foreign government is talking to an American citizen. This is a major issue. Uh, when it comes to the chemical weapons and others, listen, from this point of view, there is nothing new for us to discuss. You have uh, legal regimes about this and so on, use and don't use. But what I'm saying is that, and this was interesting, President Putin himself also, at some point, and you can see it very strongly, he understood that you cannot nationalize the economy anymore. What you can nationalize is the elites. In a certain way, if you want to be fine, Come back to Russia, come back with your money, come back with your kids, and it's fine. The major story was against this type of a cosmopolitan elites that are here and there, that basically are not controlled by any state. And I'm saying this because, in a certain okay. way, for us, this is only Russia. I see this trend in many other places. The re-emergence of the security state who says, listen, we're living in a globalized world but I want to see your passport. And this is, an interesting, this is an interesting phenomenon that should not be simply reduced to the Russian influence because they're going to be Chinese influence, they're going to be others. You see what is happening on the Islamic side and so on. Okay. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P intelligence. Okay, Michal Kordakovsky, I'd like to hear you on this fundamental question, the what is to be done question. Uh, to coin a phrase, when you are you. looking at the difficult, uh, the, the concrete threats of Salisbury, Syria, but also the intervention in, we've talked about Trump, but there is much suspicion about Brexit as well, but whatever front you choose to pick it on, what, what needs to be done, do you think? I think the West is doing the same thing as before. It's still seeing its relationship with the Kremlin in, through the prism of its relationship with Russia, or its problems, as the problems with Russia, not the Kremlin. So I think its reaction is wrong. I'm absolutely convinced there's not going to be this, the war between the West and Russia in the traditional sense of this word. So I think actually pushing money into bombers is a waste of time, a waste of money. And I think sanctions taken against Russia as a whole, in fact, hit the people who have got nothing to do with meddling in Western affairs. But let me interrupt. If the sanctions are directed at what you call the criminal gang around Putin, there are sanctions already. Do they need to change? Do they need to become more severe? Well, this is exactly what I'm driving at. If we think that our problems are with that criminal gang, it's not the diplomats who should be fighting against that gang. It's the police. Because if your account in the bank is closed because of the sanctions, you wouldn't know what to do next. And like many people holding a Russian passport sitting here, they won't know what to do next. But if you're dealing with a criminal, they've got no problems of this sort at all. Because they don't keep their money, the criminals, in the bank accounts. They choose somebody with a British passport or the American passport and say, you are going to keep my money in your account. And if you steal my money, I'm not going to take you to court. I'm just going to kill you. And how should we fight this? Actually, the British police, your Western police forces, know very well how to so do So this that. is a change of mindset, not to see it as a national security or foreign policy problem, but as a policing problem. Quick responses from you, Anne, and you, Michael, and then we'll hear okay. from our audience here. So I would say, uh, following that comment, I would say that the, the most important thing we can do um, to, to, to push back against the threat posed by Putin is to enforce our own corruption laws. 
Uh, over and over and over again, um, in this country and elsewhere here, you know, in theory we have these laws. We should be able to examine people's money. We should be able to stop certain kinds of crimes. But somehow we don't do it. We don't have the resources. I think there was also a kind of until recently this feeling, oh, well, this is just Russians being Russians. It's not really our problem. And Skripal, the Skripal story, I think, brought home that, you know, no, these, the, 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 the Russians who live here can be our problem. They, can't, they will affect people in this country. Um, enforce our own laws, and I think the same goes for the problem of disinformation. Um, you know, the, the problem is the nature of the Internet, the nature of the social media that we have created. Um, for example, the fact that it's so easy to be anonymous, that it's so easy to create fakes, that it's so easy to create botnets. We can fix that. Those are fixable problems. Not the, the problems that we should fix are internal. And, you know, as, as Yvonne said, the Russians have identified our we, weaknesses. Our weaknesses. Yeah. And the best way to fight back about it is to cure our own weaknesses, to fix them. Very good. And a quick one from you, Michael, because I do want to hear from our Quick. I got 20 minutes on this. No, we <laughs> really don't, because I mean, or we could come back to you in response to questions. if you'd prefer. Let me be brief. Um, uh, you can't have a proper prescription unless you have the proper diagnoses. Yeah. And I'm still worried that we don't have the proper diagnoses. Uh, uh, there, uh, there are, we've just focused on two, but with all due respect, disinformation and criminals are not the only things threatening the West. Uh, if I were writing the Ten Commandments for how you should be a good citizen in the world as a head of state, uh, thou shall not use nuclear weapons. Okay, that would be number one. But thou shall not annex the territory of thy neighbor. That would probably be number two or three for me. And yet, that happened, and we've just all moved on. The caravans moved on. We've gone to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. President Macron was there. Abe was there. All the business people as if annexation doesn't really matter. Uh, supporting this horrible dictator in Syria who's, who's slaughtered in a genocidal way. Oh, that's just a, a, a little problem. Uh, what happened in the, in the 2016 elections in my country? Oh, that's just a little problem. In other words, this in is like the words, criminal gang frame is not fit for purpose in your view. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. The criminal gangs did not annex Crimea. That, maybe they Why don't we just get a very quick response from you on that point that you, have, Mikhail Kordakovsky, have framed as a criminal gang, and here we've got the former ambassador saying invading and annexing countries, uh, etc. That's not just a criminal gang problem, that's a national security problem. Well, you know, lots of examples of criminal gangs in different countries influencing the policies of those countries, and yet there was still the criminal gang. The Balkans are a case in point, a good case in point, typical. Okay. <laughs> of everything. Good. Now, I know you've all got more things to say. Let's bring in our audience, lots of people with many things to say. So let's begin with num microphone number three, and I am mindful of people over there. Yeah. I'm wondering to what degree uh, the revisionist course has already been stopped because uh, the actions in Ukraine have produced a buildup in the Baltics, uh, the meddling in the United States has produced greater vigilance around election meddling in general. Um, so I'm just curious how much have, have we already been able to push back and in effect stop Putin from doing whatever he might do next? So far, the record so far. Okay, and let's hear from one of the people up there. It's hard for me to see, but over here. Yeah. Yes, uh, my question is to Mikhail. Um, in a hypothetical scenario, if he becomes the president of Russia, for example, and in the yes, in hypothetical, yes, and um, um, taking very strong sentiment in the Crimea after the propaganda which has been done for the last years, 
would he find it just to return the Crimea to Ukraine? Very interesting. Um, let's, what, Mikhail Kodakovsky, there were two questions there for you. Why don't we hear your answers on both of them? And we'll start with that last one. Were you to become one day the president of Russia, and you can share with us now your plans uh, <laughs> for that, but were that to happen, um, would one of your acts in office be to reverse the annexation of Crimea, and should you? The questioner asked, would it be just to do that? What This is why I consistently oppose the idea of the presidency and the post of the president. Because when people look up to the president, they want him to be a dictator, a benevolent dictator, still a dictator. So one would want him to issue a decree as a dictator to annex Crimea. The other part would want him to return Crimea by decree. But I think if we want to see a truly democratic Russia, we would have to agree that it's society, it's the public that has to decide, and we will have to try and convince the public. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't pick up, though, the premise of the second question that was put to you, and you've made very clearly your point to us about the office of president and how you don't want it to be seen as some kind of dictator. Uh, we accept that premise. But if there was a more democratic arrangement of the kind your group is committed to, do you want to play a role in the leadership of your country? I think that was behind the question, and we should not leave that hanging. So can you answer that for us? Uh, I think it, if it was up to me, Russia would become a parliamentary democracy, because I think it's the best model for such a large country as Russia. But would I like to get the shower of shit that would be poured <laughs> over the new Russian government? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. Well, that's very very good. Thank you. That's candid. We had a question over here uh, about whether, in a way, this ship has sailed and that the West has already let so much go. I think that was my interpretation of the question there. The second thing that we've, have we already let things go too far, and I think the ambassador's point about the annexation of Crimea might be part of that. What do you just think on that before we take another round? Yeah, I'm not sure I understood what it meant by this ship has sailed. Um, so, yes, it's true that um, pro-Russian political parties are now active in most, actually, European countries. In a couple of countries, they're now part of the government, Italy and Austria. Um, so it's, this is not by any means an East European problem. It's a, it's a European problem. Mm. Um, you know, we have a, pres a Czech president whose who's, who's, campaign was financed by Russia and who, is a, who, who speaks in, in favor of Russian foreign policy. Um, so, yes, we already have a, um, you know, the Russian investment in Western political systems is already beginning to pay off in particular ways and, and in, 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 the, in the conversation about Russia that happens um, inside the West. I mean, that doesn't mean um, it's all over or that, you know, something is lost. I mean, it's, this, it's the same question about inevitability. I mean, yes. no, that I think there are, um, you know, I think there are many things the West could do um, not least defining the problem, stating it clearly, um, identifying it as an internal problem that is being exacerbated by Russia and seeking solutions. So I think there are, you know, I, I don't think this, I don't think the game, it's game over. But, but no, I think the, 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 the political achievements of Russia in, in across the European continent are already pretty spectacular. Let's, uh, I know you both want to get in. I want to hear more voices here, and I'm going to bring you in in the next round. Um, you, no, you're not going... You've, you've got your hand up there. Why don't we go to number three, and then we will have number one uh, and number two after that. Yeah. 
Here we are. What was that? We can't see anything. So. Yeah. Oh, I see up here. You Sorry, I thought we had our first protest of the evening. Um, we will come to you as well. It's so hard for me to see. That's the only reason. There's no policy of exclusion. We'll come to you after that. Let's hear down here first of all. Yeah, number three. Okay, okay then... so you've been talking about a lot about uh, what you think should be done, but I was wondering if we look five years down the line, what do you think in reality, where is Russia going to be? Because I would love to hear all of your opinions because you come from different backgrounds. Thank you. And let's go upstairs. Yep. Uh, hi, my question is, who will inherit Russia after Putin? Will it be the criminal gang or the 100,000 civil servants? <laughs> ah, that's very good. You, both of those questions go to where we were indeed heading in our final minute, so we will bear both those in mind. Who did I say was next? Um, why don't we have microphone number one? Um, hi, a question for... And, and actually, I'm sorry, I should have said this before. If questioners could stand when they ask the question, it would be much easier for everyone else, including me, actually, to see hi, where hi. you're coming from, too. Hi, a question for there Ambassador McFall. Um, what's the worst-case scenario at Russia for the West? Okay, and... Because you're all being so admirably brief, we can squeeze in a couple more questions. Microphone number two, yeah. Okay. I have a question for Mr. Kordakovsky. Who do you, th why do you think the murder of the Skipples was planned, and who do you think was the person who ordered it? So that was the question there was, why do we think the attack on the Skripals was planned, and who might have given the order, and uh, we'll have... One more off from up there, yeah. And this will be it for this round. We might get another lot in, yes. Uh, yes, this is for Mr. Kordakovsky. Um, one of the threats from Russia is to its own citizens in the imprisoning of its political prisoners. Having spent 10 years as a political prisoner yourself, what can be done to help uh, current political prisoners in Russia? Thank you. Um, let's take these... Uh, question. Do, 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 was there one you particularly wanted to invite uh, to? There was a question specifically for you, which is what is your worst-case scenario after Putin? But that's going to get us into the what-next phase of the conversation, which we are going to end on. So before we get to that, um, this point about the Skripals, um, do, do either of you want to have an educated guess? Why don't we go with you, Anne, first, on why the attack was made and who might have given the order? So I don't know who gave the order. Um, they haven't informed me of that yet. Um, <laughs> Um, but, but it, you know, there, there have been two kinds of explanations. One is that Skripal himself was involved in ongoing operations and that that was why. Um, but I think the much more likely um, explanation and the one that accords with other Putinist policies um, across Europe um, was that it was, a, it was a way of sending a message um, to other Russians who might be thinking of defecting or thinking of changing their sympathies, and as it was a way of telling them, don't do it, because wherever you are, however well hidden you think you are, we can still get you. And the timing, in, it was a couple of weeks, I think, before the election in Russia. Do you think that's part of it? So it, it, it may well have been part of it. The timing may well have been, um, look, we can, it's, it's always about showing we can do it. Look, you think, you, you know, we can, we can do, we can get him even though he's in the West. Um, and it's another way of showing how powerful we are, how how, you know, all-seeing all we are and how many things we can achieve. And just on this business, because it's been part of our... It's been a thread throughout the whole conversation about whether it's Putin, whether it's associates of Putin. One of the lines that came out was, look, genuinely, it may not have been he who knew about it, Putin. No, it could impossible. be people are rung below who are being overzealous in their loyalty. What so, do you make of all that? So that kind of operation involving several people and a, and a very highly guarded, um, secret 
form of chemical weapon would, would not have been carried out unless it had some approval at very high levels. You know, guys don't just organize themselves to get on a plane and fly to London, um, you know, make themselves, make their way out to Salisbury and do something like that without very high level and very, um, very senior approval. Okay. And I'm just, just to close this out, lots of politicians in this country saying, you know, we need an investigation and an inquiry. Is this the sort of thing that any investigation ever could resolve properly, as in whether the order came from the very top or the kind of questions I've just been Well, actually, the Litvinenko case, the conclusion of that case after it was finally investigated was pretty spectacular. And they, the judge did, in fact, point the finger at Putin himself um, via the, there were, there were, you know, via some of it was off the record secret information and some of it was public information. So, yeah, no, I do think, uh, I think uh, the, an exploration and an investigations can often, often um, produce a lot of good information. But it took six years, that public inquiry in this country. Partly because um, the, the, the then government um, and the then Home Office Minister, Theresa May, were pushing back against having the investigation. Interesting. Thank you. Um, now let's get to this question, which th- th- three, at least three of these questions that we got just now related to, which is the what happens next question. And they came in the form of, you know, in five years' time, what will be the situation? A question put to you directly was, what's the worst-case scenario after Putin? And then this notion of who will inherit. Will it be the 100,000 civil servants we were hearing about, or will it be the criminal gang? So let's spend probably our remaining minutes together on these, uh, this, this sort of slight crystal ball gazing. Start with you, uh, Ambassador, this notion of, uh, the worst case scenario. So let's start with the, the, the worst you can imagine and then maybe brighten up from there. <laughs> that, that's my assignment. Um, I can think of a lot of worst case scenarios that I don't want to go into detail about. Um, but, but I want to ask the larger question because the, yeah. they're related in, in my mind. Um, and in the same way that Yvonne began his remarks at the beginning of this, saying that there's been an oversimplified view of Russia, uh, what they do inside our countries and the blame for Russia. I want to also leave you, because it looks like we're getting to the end, with the same thing about talking about Russia itself. Uh, when I hear people talk about Russia, I, I, I do a lot, given the, the profession I'm in. I, I, by the way, I've lived in that country six or seven years, depending on the way you count it. Um, and, and when I hear people generalize about Putin and Putinism and his popularity, I get really nervous because that society is way more complex than I think most people give it credit to. Uh, he just won a new election. So people say, well, he's popular. Well, it's really easy to be popular when you control all the things that Ann just described. So when I hear that everybody loves Putin, I'm suspicious of that, A. Uh, and by the way, just think about it for a minute. Uh, the Russians know their society is the most moni- one of the most monitored in the world. Uh, I most certainly lived that way when I was the U.S. ambassador. I assumed that every email, every phone call, every movement I made in my house, my beautiful Spasso house, by the way, where we lived for a while, was monitored. Russians assume that. So when some random guy calls you from Moscow and you're sitting there in Vladivostok and he says, Hey, I'm Ivan Ivanovich. I'm doing a poll about what you think of Putin. Remember, he's calling from Moscow. There's only one rational response to that answer, my friends. So don't believe all these polls are are that important in terms of preferences. And that leads me to two other things I want to say about the the complexity of Russia, both the past and the future. Mm. Um, Remember, it was just not long ago that hundreds of thousands of people were protesting on the streets of Moscow to demand a, a, a different society. 
hundreds of thousands of people, not 50, not 500. And by the way, it scared the hell out of Putin. I know that because he blamed us for part of it, and he blamed me for it as part of the argument to mobilize his domestic base and to put those people, to marginalize those people. Some of them, by the way, are still in jail today. Let's remember them. Thank you for the question from above. Thank you. This is the sort of future gazing I'm, I'm keen to get you on now, Ivan. You know, the very five years' time, worst case scenarios, who inherits? Take whichever one of those you like, but tell us your, the image you have of the future. No, uh, I just want to, take, uh, to say two things. First, and I agree very much, in order to know what is going to happen in Russia in five years, probably in five years not much is going to happen, to be honest, talking about uh, the term. But we should know what is going to happen in the world. We are talking about the Russia as if this is on the moon. Listen, it depends what's going to happen in the United States, in Europe, in China. In a certain way, certain things that are happening in Russia is very much the result of what is happening in other parts of the world. But secondly, talking about why you have so many people in the Silicon Valley. Part of the problem is it's not the Russia problem. I can see it in my own country. I see it everywhere. There are a lot of people who probably are disappointed with the political reality that they see. But we're living in a world in which if you want to change radically your life, better change your country than try to change your government. Hmm. So from this point of view, the exit option is so easy that from this point of view, many people that you expect they're going to be on the street, they're going to be in the street, but on the street of London. Uh, and from this point of view, you have a totally different dynamics of reproducing some of these systems. And you believe that simply when one day President Putin is not going to be there and nothing is going to be left of him, I do believe this is also kind of unrealistic. I was reading some of the opinion polls, but not opinion polls for whom you are going to vote. Do you know that at the moment, the majority of the boys studying in the Russian schools, when they ask what you want to be your profession in the future, want to work in the security services? Listen. This is a change, and this is also going to affect the society, nevertheless, of who is going to come and how it's going to come. So yeah. these 20 years are not just going to disappear. Thank you. Um, so why don't you give us an answer on the conditions of political prisoners, you were one, and what you feel about the ones who are still there in jail, and then give us your sense of who inherits, whether it is the criminal gang that you talked about or the 100,000 civil servants you talked about. Uh, I think I'll start answering the Skripal question first. He's already a politician answering the questions I haven't asked. Um, but, but, but you go close, briefly on that, if you would, and then political prisoners in the future. The question was put to me, so I feel obliged to answer it. I think in the next year, two, three years, we'll actually find out the actual chain of command on every assassination that has been committed or will be committed in the future. I think, well, I suppose we already know the chain of command on all the previous assassinations, and I don't think Putin was always part of that chain. But I think he has always been there as creating the kind of protection for the assassins so that they couldn't, could not be properly brought to justice. When we talk about Russia in five years' time, I would agree with Ivan, and there's very little I can add. And I think when we talk about who is going to inherit power in Russia after Putin, 
everything will depend or largely depend on the civil society. But I think history has already taught us a lesson 100%. I think utmostly, finally, power would be inherited by 100,000 bureaucrats or civil servants. And finally, on political prisoners. Fortunately, contemporary society is different from Stalin's society. So in order to frighten everybody, you don't have to imprison two million people again. All you have to do is imprison a hundred people and then show it on TV two million times. <laughs> But it would be wrong to forget those hundred. Because that's what Putin's entourage, his government, are trying to do. They're trying to pretend that these people have been forgotten. Had I not had the support I had enjoyed, I don't know whether my will had been broken, but I would certainly be still imprisoned behind bars. Because there was the smallest window of opportunity for my release, and it was thanks to the pressure of many people, including Angela Merkel and Henscher, that they used that window of opportunity for me and Platon Lebedev, my partner, to be released. Unfortunately, many people are still behind bars, including Alexei Pichugin, who has been in prison for 15 years. Thank you. Um, let's give you, um, Apple, the closing word, um, this question of the future. Very hard to, to, as all of your answers have suggested, but what's your sense of what's next for Russia and for Putin? So I think I can make a prediction um, about how Putinism will end. Um, and I think the prediction is that one way or the other, Putinism will end in a crisis. And either it will be an internal crisis. It will be uh, the, the people around him no longer like the direction he's taking the country. Um, too many, there, are, there are too many people who are invested, I mean, literally and figuratively in the West, who don't like the war with Um, the, 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 either the war with Ukraine or the war, the, the verbal war with the West, or it will be a crisis caused by his own death or his own exit. This is a country that has no succession plan. There is no way to select the next leader. There is no way to transfer power from Putin to anybody else. There is no, and this is the essence of authoritarianism, that there isn't a system, there isn't a systematic um, legal way to transfer power. So whatever happens when he leaves office, um, it, will, it will provoke a crisis of his system um, and, and within the country. Thank you. And thank you to all four of you for, I think, a very stimulating but also candid and comprehensive survey of this situation. I think we've had uh, a very uh, uh, full dialogue. I hope you've enjoyed it too. I think it only remains really for me to ask all of you in, to join me in thanking Ivan Krustev and Applebaum, Michael McFall and Mikhail Kolikovsky and Elena Wolf, our translator. And thank you all very much.